thank you, Rick, and thank you all for being here today. Uh, actually, this is a, still a work in progress, and I hope it could contribute to a better understanding of an important but less investigated issue, international relations, and it is the formation and transformation of uh, the foreign policy of the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, in the course of time during the last uh, two and a half decades. Uh, the question that is addressed here is uh, uh, the way in which the formation and transformation of this policy became possible. In other words, how after a revolutionary process directed against uh, a suppressive regime, uh, the new regime adopts a foreign policy orientation which is somehow absolutely contrary to the foreign policy orientation of the old regime. Uh, instead of uh, um, pro-status quo, pro-stability, pro-U.S., pro-Western foreign policy orientation, we have an anti-status quo, anti-Western, anti-U.S. Uh, foreign policy. And how in the course of time, despite rhetoric continuities, we can see uh, changes in Iran's definition of its interests, of uh, situations, uh, its foreign policy behavior, and the language it uses in international arena, specifically in the 1990s. Uh, IR theories have somehow uh, explained the issue of formation and transformation of the foreign policy of uh, revolutionary regimes. Uh, most of them actually take the disruptive nature of uh, revolutionary ideologies for granted. And then uh, they somehow uh, suggest that uh, uh, the revolutionary states become socialized into the imper imperatives of the international system in the course of time. And, uh, of course, they have uh, different definitions for socialization, but uh, all of them actually see socialization from a systemic point of view and not from a foreign policy perspective. And that is why uh, they don't explain how particular actors become socialized into the uh, imperatives of the international system. And also, uh, because they uh, take for granted the disruptive nature of uh, uh, foreign policy ideologies in, this, in these regimes, we see that they do not explain the formation of uh, revolutionary um, foreign policy discourses. And um, when uh, we look at uh, the uh, literature on Iran's foreign policy, we see that uh, most of the work actually is somehow descriptive and historical. But there have been authors that uh, have tried to explain Iran's foreign policy on the basis of theoretical frameworks in international relations. Most of them have um, adopted a neorealist uh, point of view, and uh, they have most often emphasized the importance of material factors, uh, geopolitical, geostrategic considerations, and uh, even those who have uh, somehow paid attention to ideational factors uh, such as national culture or revolutionary ideology, they have limited its influence to domestic level, and they do not pay attention to uh, the effects of uh, international ideational structure. Uh, actually, there are a few points that are not addressed, uh, whether in the uh, IR literature or uh, the foreign policy of Iran uh, literature. For example, uh, the, how the formation and transformation of discourses and identities at the domestic level um, make foreign policy directions and redirections possible, how revolutionary identity is constructed, how it is changed in the course of time, and how international ideational structures uh, affect uh, foreign policy discourse and identity, and what are the limitations to identity change or uh, socialization of revolutionary states. 
in order to address these questions, I have adopted a conceptual framework based on constructivist assumptions. And identity is taken as a social construct. It is discursively constituted, and there is a degree of fluidity uh, in discourses and identities. And state identities are constructed at both uh, domestic and international levels. Um, and um, uh, on the basis of these uh, assumptions, I have uh, uh, actually offered a, a constructivist discursive model uh, having three main components. Uh, one is that domestic discourses constitute primary state identity. Uh, then articulations of uh, uh, the discourse that constitute the primary state identity with elements of international discourses constitute state identity within the uh, society of states. And this is what I call socialization. Uh, and uh, another component of this model, this model actually emphasizes uh, the uh, limitations on socialization. This is uh, something less uh, addressed in IR literature. Uh, I argue that uh, the nature of articulations as well as interactions uh, have some, may have some limiting uh, effects on the degree of socialization. In other words, revolutionary states may remain under-socialized. Um, my basic argument is that uh, the discourses that later constituted the identity of the Islamic Republic uh, are rooted in the revolutionary movement of 1978-79. And without understanding the discursive aspects of the revolution, we cannot understand the foreign policy of Iran. This revolutionary movement, as any other movement, uh, had specific elements. Uh, actually, we see the significance of people, an anti-status quo character, legitimacy of non-institutional um, means, expressing transnational solidarities, and regarding resistance as a value in itself. Uh, the 1979 revolution was not just against uh, the Shah's regime. It was also against its supporters. It was not just uh, against the dictatorship. It was also against imperialism. And that is why from the very beginning, we see that uh, in the uh, movement discourse, there were elements that later proved to have important foreign policy implications. Uh, in the general uh, discursive structure of the movement, we can uh, distinguish two important discourses that had foreign policy implications. One is what I call discourse of hyper-independence, and the second is the discourse of universal justice. Both of them actually are based on uh, historical narratives and um, are the result of articulations with elements of other discourses existing in the um, cultural repertoire in Iran. Uh, the independence discourse is actually based on three historical narratives. One is the narrative about the glorious past of Iran. Iran in this uh, narrative is represented as an ancient empire, a great power, a center of art, science, technology, uh, culture in the Islamic era, a great power in the 16th, 17th centuries. And actually this uh, 
narrative is used somehow to show the potentials of Iran and uh, how these potentials can be again actualized to uh, lead into uh, the formation of a great power. And the second uh, narrative is historical victimization. According to this narrative, Iran, although it was a great power, it was uh, victimized by foreign invaders in history, from the Greeks to Mongols to Turks to Arabs. Actually, they all victimized Iran, and uh, this shows the vulnerability of Iran. And uh, this vulnerability is due to its um, geo-strategic uh, and geopolitical location. Uh, and it, this, uh, actually, element of vulnerability is very important for uh, uh, actually when we look at the foreign policy of Iran later. And, and the third uh, narrative, which is I think more important, is about imperial encounters between Iran and the West. Uh, according to this narrative, uh, the dependence and underdevelopment of Iran is the result of uh, these encounters. And uh, one important uh, element in this narrative is the way in which self and other are constructed. One, uh, actually, at one level, we have uh, self and, as Iran and the other as the imperial powers. But at another level, which is perhaps more important, uh, is uh, the fact that uh, actors inside uh, Iran are somehow divided into two groups. One is the self, actually the... Uh, uh, non-submissive, non-compromising, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial actors. Uh, for example, uh, we have individual heroes such as Amir Kabir and Mossadegh, or even in the Islamic version of this narrative, we have Ayatollah Khomeini as uh, actually heroes of uh, anti-imperialist uh, struggles. And uh, we have uh, anti-imperialist uh, movements, uh, such as tobacco movement in uh, the late 19, uh, 19th century, a constitutional revolution, uh, oil nationalization movement, and the Islamic uh, movement of the early 1960s. And uh, these movements, again, uh, were non-submissive. They were against foreign penetration, foreign influence, and uh, the dependence of country on foreign uh, powers. And uh, in the Islamic version of uh, this uh, narrative, we see that uh, there is a social group that is represented as uh, uh, the main leading force in uh, these movements, and that is the uh, Islamic clergy of, or the ulama. Uh, the ulama actually are represented as being the most uh, non-submissive, non-compromising actors in Iran's recent history. They uh, did not uh, uh, surrender to foreign uh, influences. On the other hand, we have the other. Actually, we have the kings, royal families, ruling elites, and the part of intellectuals who were submissive, compromising, and even it is said that they sold the country in order to have their own uh, personal benefits. And uh, in this way, we see that how non-submission and being non-compromising becomes so important. Uh, these uh, narratives are articulated with elements of uh, leftist discourse of imperialism and dependency, uh, nationalist discourse of self-determination, and Islamic discourse of rejection of dominance over Muslims. This is actually a theological term. It is nafi sabil, and it means that a Muslim not, not, must not surrender to non-Muslims' uh, dominance. 
And uh, another discourse, which is again very important, is an intellectual discourse dominant in Iran during the 1960s and 1970s specifically, and it is called discourse of westoxication, uh, or qarb it is called in Persian. Uh, in this discourse, actually it is somehow a discourse uh, influenced mostly by uh, continental philosophers such as Heidegger, and it is somehow problematizing modernity and the West. But in its more popular uh, versions, we see that uh, in this discourse, the West is represented as the main radical other. And uh, it is somehow represented as being the source of all miseries that uh, Iranian people suffered uh, from during the last two centuries. And the uh, result is a discourse that I call hyper-independence, a maximalist reading of independence. And this constitutes a non-compromising, non-submissive, uh, anti-Western, and totally independent identity. Um, again, we have the discourse of justice. Uh, this discourse is, again, uh, based on some historical narratives and myths myths about uh, Persian kings who were just and uh, seeing justice as uh, the main pillar of sociopolitical life. We have uh, Zoroastrian and Shiite Islamic discourses and narratives about the importance of uh, just governance uh, and also uh, regarding justice as one of the pillars of the universe. Uh, this concept uh, we see that is articulated with leftist internationalism, Islamic universalism, and to a degree, liberal internationalism, and the result is a discourse of universal justice and a universal justice-seeking identity. Uh, we see that uh, with the victory of the revolution, um, somehow the conditions we, uh, that we call dual sovereignty ends, and uh, uh, a new regime replaces the old regime. The leaders of the movement become uh, the, a part of the state body. Uh, new institutions are uh, created and uh, uh, old institutions are reconstructed and a new in, uh, constitution is formulated in order to define the new identity of the state to justify and legitimize its uh, identity, its uh, the new institutions and the new state. And now, uh, we see that in this new constitution, elements of movement discourse and movement identity are uh, incorporated. And uh, perhaps you may say that uh, movement identity had created path dependencies, strength from which was not possible. And that is why we see that discourses of hyper-independence and justice are somehow reflected in the provisions of the new constitution. Uh, Hyper-independence is somehow translated to a thick interpretation of uh, sovereignty, and it has uh, two uh, main aspects. One negative, rejecting any form of foreign influence, foreign control, foreign dominance. And this any is very important. We have perhaps a dozen of articles in the Constitution in which this any is repeated. Uh, any kind of influence and uh, dominance is rejected. And the positive aspect is uh, actually achieving self-sufficiency, again, in all aspects of <coughs> socioeconomic uh, socio life. And uh, this is the duty of the state to achieve such a self-sufficiency. 
Universal justice is again uh, reflected in different uh, articles uh, supporting the world of prayer, supporting liberation movements, and uh, promoting Islamic unity. And there is also implied a kind of um, uh, understanding of international system as an unjust system. Uh, well, uh, when we look at the rules um, formulated in the Constitution, we see that there is a compatibility of uh, the rules on independence with uh, a thick interpretation of sovereignty, and the rules on justice are somehow formulated in a way uh, besides um, recognizing uh, the importance of rule of non-intervention. And also we see that there is more emphasis on independence than on justice. These are actually the attempts uh, to make movement identity compatible with state identity. But there is a possibility uh, for conflicts between uh, this movement identity and state identity. Uh, there are institutions that are called movement institutions. Uh, these are the institutions that uh, are there somehow to guarantee the continuity of uh, movement discourse and movement identity. And these resist any thin interpretation of uh, constitutional rules. And uh, specifically during the first few years after the revolution, we see that the new elite uh, lacks experience of acting on behalf of the state. The combination of these factors leads uh, to the possibility for a movement-oriented interpretation of uh, constitutional rules, and this leads to the formation of what I call movement state identity. It is not a nation state identity. It is not a pure state identity. It is actually a state identity very close to that of a movement. But this uh, movement state identity did not immediately replace the um, identity of the old regime. Uh, from February 1979 to November 1979, when the interim government of Bazargan was in power, we see that uh, the discourse dominant in uh, foreign policy was a kind of uh, accommodationist discourse of independence and justice. Uh, elements of movement discourse uh, were there, but uh, the discourse and the identity were not um, uh, actually militant. They were critical, but they were not confrontationist. And um, at the same time, we see that there is a confrontationist discourse of uh, independence and justice uh, dominant among uh, various political factions and uh, the, specifically among the revolutionary institutions. And uh, uh, in this discourse, the international system is represented as being unjust, as being an artificial uh, creature uh, created by great powers in order to guarantee their own interests. Uh, it is against the interest of uh, the people and the oppressed people of the world. Uh, it is itself the problem, and uh, we cannot uh, seek for solution within this system. Uh, and in the same way that the people of Iran could overthrow the seemingly powerful political system in Iran, the people of the world can unite and overthrow the uh, seemingly powerful international system and uh, actually replace it with a more just system. Uh, in this discourse, non-institutional means are uh, justified to be used, and uh, 
there is no necessity to um, follow international rules. And um, actually, even the very basic rules, such as national interest or uh, following national interest or raison d'etat. Um, the event that led to the dominance of this second discourse and identity was hostage-taking in the American embassy in Tehran. Hostage-taking itself was a movement. Actually, it was a part of uh, um, Iranian students' uh, anti-imperialist movement dating back at least to the 1950s. But the point was that the reaction to the movement was not a state reaction. It was a movement reaction actually a kind of solidarity with uh, the students' movement. And we can say that actually it was a moment of uh, in reclaiming movement identity by a revolutionary, uh, by the revolutionary leaders uh, who actually were the leaders of a movement and could not easily abandon their uh, movement identity. And uh, they were still in the process of acquiring state identity. And in this process, we see that uh, movement state identity uh, becomes dominant. It is actually from November 1980 until uh, 1989. Of course, uh, most observers of Iran's foreign policy believe that in 1983, 1984, changes begin in uh, Iran's foreign policy discourse and behavior. But uh, somehow, more or less, the discourse is uh, dominant there until 1980. Nine. What are the implications of this movement of state identity? There is a non-conventional understanding of interest and power. Uh, interest is not uh, defined in national terms. It is defined in transnational global terms. It is not terms in. It is not defined in terms of power. Actually, it is defined beyond terms of power, and power itself is not defined in uh, conventional terms. It is more defined in. Uh, spiritual terms. People, to di people diplomacy is privileged to any conventional diplomatic relations, and uh, there is an emphasis on uh, cordial relations with liberation movements, and there is a negative attitude towards international organization and international law. Uh, although it is usually argued, and correctly it is argued, that the war somehow reinforced the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq, uh, somehow reinforced and reproduced movement discourse and movement identity due to mobilization requirements of the uh, war, uh, we can say that war acted somehow as a path or a tunnel through which this movement from movement identity to a nation-state identity could, be, could become possible. War had actually two main effects. Uh, first of all, it was an issue of survival. Iran uh, soon found itself in a self-help environment. And uh, the war was seen as a war of all against it. If it was not a, a war of all against all, it was a war of all against it. And this actually led to learning the uh, Hobbesian aspect of international culture. At the same time, Iran had no way but to uh, appeal to international institutions and international law in order to justify its own position and to condemn uh, Iraqi invasion. And so it, uh, this actually had discursive effects and uh, it led to learning 
Lockean aspects of international culture. Uh, thus, we see that uh, articulation of elements of these two discourses with the discourses of independence and justice lead to a new foreign policy discourse uh, through which we can see the socialization of a revolutionary state. Uh, and in this new uh, identity, we see that uh, Iran uh, comes to acquire a territorial understanding of state and it recognizes international rules and there are changes in uh, practice. Actually, Iran gives uh, priority to national interests instead of transnational and global interests. It turns to conventional diplomatic relations. Uh, it has interactions with the UN and other uh, international organizations, and it uses international institutions in order to further the cause of justice instead of using non-institutional means. Um, after the end of the war, we see that uh, there emerges a new foreign policy doctrine. This is called the uh, doctrine of Omol Qura. Omol Qura is a theological term, and it means metropolis, metropolis of the Islamic world. In this discourse, Iran is represented at, as the metropolis of the Islamic world. If it is the metropolis of the Islamic world, so its security and survival will become the main uh, priority. If it is the metropolis, it should become an example to be followed by others. And so it should become powerful, it should become advanced, it should become developed. And this actually paves the ground for a new role identity that Iran actually defines for itself, and it is a would-be regional power. Uh, we can see that this, uh, in this new definition of the self, that narratives of the glorious past and also narratives about the uh, importance of uh, geopolitical position of Iran uh, had some constitutive effects. Uh, and Iran's material capacities and capabilities somehow made it uh, an appropriate candidate uh, for this new identity. What were the implications of this new identity? Actually, there was a conventional understanding of uh, power in military, economic, and soft power terms. Uh, we see that uh, Iran uh, adopts a more positive approach towards international institutions. Uh, it becomes somehow a pro-stability, pro-status quo power in uh, the region, I mean both in the Persian Gulf and Central Asia and Caucasus. Uh, in the 1990s, we see that uh, during the Kuwaiti crisis in um, Iran actually takes sides with the international coalition. Uh, even uh, in the uprising in Iraq, Shiite uprising in Iraq, uh, it doesn't uh, actively support uh, the Shiites in uh, southern Iraq. Uh, it tries somehow to persuade other uh, Persian Gulf states to create a more inclusive um, uh, security arrangement in the region. In Central Asia and Caucasus, it uh, pursues a low-cost, low low-risk uh, policy. It doesn't um, uh, support uh, Islamist movements there. Instead, uh, it actually uh, limits itself to have cultural and economic presence. And whenever the uh, Islamist movements have, uh, are in conflicts with uh, the governments in the region, it acts as a mediator in Chechnya, in Tajikistan. And even in um, regional conflicts, uh, it does not immediately 
take side with the Muslim state. For example, in uh, the conflicts between Azerbaijan and Armenia, instead of supporting Azerbaijan as a Muslim state, it just acts as a mediator between the two uh, parties. Uh, and uh, it tries to normalize its bilateral relations with the uh, countries in the region, with Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, Morocco, Jordan, uh, even to some degree Iraq and uh, uh, some degree Egypt. It begins uh, to have uh, critical dialogues with the European Union, and uh, these dialogues later are renamed uh, constructive uh, dialogues. And the United States, perhaps, the exception here. Uh, but we see that it is not that much ex exception. Uh, in the 1990s, we see that there is a change in foreign policy of Iran towards the states. And during the uh, Kuwaiti crisis in Iraq and Afghanistan, Iran uh, somehow had some tacit cooperation with the states. But the point is that uh, none of the parties recognized this cooperation as a cooperation. And uh, this was uh, due to some factors. Actually, uh, first of all, it was that uh, in both uh, discourses of justice and uh, independence, the U.S. was represented as the main other. And uh, it was the source of all the miseries of, the, uh, of Iran, uh, in the, at least in the um, 25 years before the revolution and also after the revolution. And uh, the point was that this discourse, this aspect of discourse, and this um, identification of the states uh, was reinforced and uh, reproduced uh, through interactions with the United States during the 1980s, and specifically in the 1990s, uh, and uh, up to the present. Actually, we see that unlike other aspects of Iran's interaction with the society of the states that somehow led to modification in discourse and changes in identity, uh, this aspect of uh, its discourse and identity not only didn't change, but also became uh, somehow reinforced. And this was uh, perhaps due to uh, practices of the United States. And... Uh, the way in which it identified Iran as a rogue state outlaw uh, and part of the axis of evil or whatever. And uh, we can see that how this mutual hostility were reproduced in the course of time. With the exception, of course, of uh, uh, this uh, specific aspect of uh, Iran's uh, relations, we can see that uh, during the 1990s, an accommodationist discourse of justice and independence uh, dominates in Iran, Iran's foreign policy discourse, and uh, um, actually an accommodationist identity is taken. And even during the Khatami administration, we can see that there are elements of a cooperative uh, discourse of independence and justice, but this uh, discourse never becomes uh, hegemonic due to uh, oppositions from uh, domestic forces inside Iran. And later, uh, actually it was two years ago, I think, that uh, this new identity of Iran as a would-be regional power was somehow institutionalized. And it, it was uh, formulated in a national document known as 20-Year Perspective. This is a very important uh, document. Uh, actually, it is said that it is the basis for uh, the grand strategy of Iran for the t next 20 years. And the result is actually that uh, uh, Iran uh, is supposed to act as a normal state. 
But there are limitations to this neural identity. Uh, some observers of Iran's foreign policy believe that Iran cannot become a regional power unless it allies with the West due to geopolitical and geostrategic reasons. And uh, the problem or the point is that um, such an approach cannot be actualized due to some impediments. Uh, and uh, there are actually two main problems that um, not only uh, may not uh, may make this um, alliance pattern improbable, they may also lead to a reverse in discourse and identity. One is the problem of international recognition. In order to become a, a regional power, Iran needs to be recognized uh, as a regional power. Uh, we know that uh, even during the Shah's era, uh, the British traditionally didn't like Iran to be the supreme actor in the region. The U.S. in the Shah's era, of course, was for this and supported Iran, even facilitated uh, Iran to have this role identity. But uh, today it doesn't uh, seem to uh, welcome the idea. And even it is uh, believed that uh, uh, the U.S. acts as if Iran does not have any kind of legitimate interest in the region. And uh, not even as a regional power, as a regional actor, it doesn't have any uh, legitimate interests, and these interests are denied. Uh, and also we see that uh, regional actors uh, in the Persian Gulf specifically uh, do not welcome the idea of uh, seeing uh, Iran as uh, the supreme regional power. Uh, Iranian elites believe that this is uh, due to American pressures, but uh, it seems that even during the Shah's era, uh, the regional actors did not um, feel uh, comfortable with the idea of seeing Iran as the dominant power. And there are also domestic oppositions, uh, confrontationist uh, and uh, isolationist discourse and identity is there. It is still active among, uh, it is dominant among uh, political factions and revolutionary uh, institutions. and. Um, they um, reject the idea of uh, alliance with the West altogether, and even they uh, do not see any necessity for any redefinition of Iran's identity. And uh, as conclusion, I may say that uh, although Iran is somehow to, to an ex extent socialized, but it is still under-socialized, and um, this is due to uh, the influence of several factors. One is the degree of uh, significance of uh, primary discourses and identity. We see that uh, discourse of justice uh, was uh, more easily adaptable to uh, a state identity. But um, uh, discourse of independence has been more resistant. And this is because uh, from the very beginning, discourse of independence was uh, actually did, did have a uh, more important position in uh, the ideational uh, structure inside Iran. And um, another point is that uh, we cannot take, uh, we cannot have actually a monolithic understanding of Iran's foreign policy. Still, there is no consensus about Iran's identity. And uh, now we see that domestic politics becomes important because of this. Of course, this is somehow natural. Perhaps we have it in uh, most of the countries in the world, but in Iran perhaps it is more acute. And uh, another factor which is important is implications of interactions in the 
uh, at the systemic level. We see that uh, some interactions at the systemic level may act as impediments uh, in the process of uh, socialization. And these together lead uh, actually to under-socialization. And um, uh, of course, uh, one point that I forget to say is that uh, this confrontationist and isolationist discourse and identity, we see that it is dominant among factions and institutions that have the least uh, interaction with the uh, society of the states. And uh, if we accept that it is through interaction that uh, uh, changes in discourse and uh, identity become possible, we can understand why uh, they are under-socialized. And uh, even among them, we can see that there has been a change, but it, actually they, are, they do not have movement identity uh, as uh, they had in the uh, 1980s. It is very different from that. And we can expect that uh, now that uh, somehow some of these uh, forces have gained power in Iran after the recent uh, elections, we can uh, anticipate that in the course of time, through their interaction with the uh, society of the states, they too uh, will uh, change somehow their discourse and identity. Thanks for your patience, and thank you. Are there any questions or comments? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've heard of this fascinating talk. Um, I, you just, I know we all tend to see the world through what we study, but I was just thinking, you know, the Soviet Union in the 1920s, hyper-independence, rejection of the West, born in war, view the international system is unjust, this movement state identity concept is fits it very well, um, uh, a license to disobey international rules, uh, non-conventional understanding of interests and power. I mean, if you thought at all about this project in, in the comparative sense, sure. but how quickly states socialize them, mm -hmm. themselves, because you also see the Soviet Union becoming you know, socialism in one country, yeah. uh, you know, becoming a, you know, a, a survival tactic rather than an aviation uh, actually, uh, yeah, I think actually um, the basic model is uh, applicable to uh, cases such as Soviet Union and uh, Chinese uh, foreign policy. And uh, I think actually the same mechanisms are at work. And uh, the way in which actually uh, the movement identity is changed to a state identity, even if that state identity is still confrontationist, even if it is so. Yes, I think that um, they are comparable and perhaps um, comparative studies always show the differences and why uh, they, uh, the degree of socialization is different among them. This is very important. And why some of them are more quickly socialized. And why some of them, when they are socialized, there is no reverse shift. And why, in cases, there are reverse shifts. I think uh, through compar uh, comparative studies, we can actually uh, find these points. Because in the Soviet period, over the whole stretch, this was mm -hmm. a constant source of tension. You know, are they a, a, a normal, quote unquote, yeah. state in the international system, or are they something else? And that was. Kind of that is, I think, as I said, because uh, they remain somehow under socialized. Yeah. There always is, a, is there's an element of uh, movement identity there. Yes. Well, to stretch it further, Franks in 17. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which to many still remains under social.
I was also going to, or thinking about mentioning the comparison with France, and, and there is one, one salient difference that I can think of that has turned up in my own research. By the early, or certainly mid-1790s, France was in a situation where it actually was attacked by all the neighboring mm -hmm. countries. All the rest of Europe ganged up and attacked mm -hmm. France, and so the French immediately stopped trying to export the revolution in their foreign policy right. and, and conducted a, a sort of revolution-neutral foreign mm -hmm. policy in an effort to try to get help or support or even maintain relations with French communities outside France wherever they could find them. Right. Uh, as I said, actually, I agree that uh, uh, these comparisons uh, may, um, uh, may may be eliminated, right? Alex? Um, I was struck by the term under-socialization um, because it suggests under-civilized, primitive, think about it in sort of an everyday context, a child is under-socialized, right? So the whole task is to get the child socialized so they can participate in society in a normal way. So it has a normative connotation to it. It suggests that being socialized is good, and under-socialized is bad. And I'm wondering if you thought about that from kind of a normative standpoint, whether the term in light of that normative standpoint is really appropriate. Uh, actually, I didn't um, really use it uh, in um, a negative sense. It is actually uh, some, somehow to um, see why the degree of socialization is different. Uh, and uh, socialization perhaps uh, uh, has its, uh, its value-laden, uh, perhaps, uh, concept. Uh, I didn't want to um, actually have that uh, value-laden aspect of it. Uh, perhaps I may have to uh, point out to the fact that uh, under-socialization is not necessarily something good or bad. It is something about the degree of socialization and uh, soci perhaps uh, socialization into the imperatives of the existence system is not something good. It's not something valuable in itself, but it is something that happens due to uh, actually power structure and um, uh, ideational structure of the system and the interaction of the system, whatever. Yeah. I mean, just to follow up, I mean, in a sense, the term, using the term, looks at Iranian foreign policy from the standpoint of the system. Whereas if you were to look at Iranian foreign policy from Iran's standpoint, one might use the term resistance, for example, more of a Cotian kind of way of thinking about this, and so, which would emphasize the agency of the Iranian elites and so on. So um, it may be, I agree, it's not necessarily normative, but the choice of term might suggest something about the frame with which you're looking at this, which might have more kind of standard social science aspects. Uh, actually, another way to look at it is uh, to look at it as a counter-hegemonic discourse. Um, and this is, uh, if you look at it from a critical point of view, yes. If I want to uh, apply uh, critical theory in international relations, and I think that I can uh, see uh, this um, as a counter-hegemonic discourse and uh, how a counter-hegemonic discourse uh, uses um, the dominant international discourses in order to change it uh, somehow. Uh, of course, this is another perspective. Um, I think you can uh, you can see uh, the phenomena from both perspectives, but you cannot see at the same time from the both perspectives. So, uh, in this uh, article, in this uh, actually study, I have taken um, constructivist uh, model, and so the uh, emphasis is on uh, uh, the inf uh, influence of uh, international ideational structures. I want to have you talk about 
talk a little more about the importance of the ideational causal story. <laughs> because it seems to me you start with a theoretical premise that these discourses are significant in explaining policy. But it seems to me that war, and then the geopolitical realities after that war, uh, seem to drive most of your analysis in the paper. So we're, we're not really surprised as a reader when we get to the Kuwait war uh, that, the, that Iran stands aside. I mean, it's a no geopolitical condition to take on the United States over Kuwait, nor would it have any interest in defending Iraq from the United States, nor is it capable of defending Shia. So it, it sort of makes a virtue of necessity. And it, so much of the paper seems to be uh, socialization as uh, making virtue of, of necessity as it accommodates to the material structures of the system. And I wonder, why is that wrong? I don't see it as wrong. Uh, and why mm -hmm. emphasize, why start with an argument that discourse and ideational structures are important? Uh, actually, uh, first of all, I myself, uh, if I want to call myself, I would say I'm a multi-perspectivist. Uh, actually, I believe that uh, the reality can be seen from different uh, perspectives, and from each perspective, we can see some uh, thing, and we cannot see others. And this is uh, something very natural. And uh, in uh, this uh, multi-perspectivism, uh, somehow, um, when actually we have different studies from different uh, perspectives, then we have a better understanding of the uh, whole uh, phenomena. Uh, I do not deny the importance of uh, material um, uh, structure, the material uh, factors. Even in the uh, paper, I have uh, referred to it that uh, uh, even the termination of war uh, can be uh, analyzed on absolutely materialist basis. But uh, we can also have this understanding that it was a kind of identity change, it was a kind of discursive change. It doesn't mean that we, uh, I, I ignore or I uh, deny the importance of material factors, but that if I just um, uh, concentrate on the importance of ideational factors, I can see something that cannot be seen through a materialist perspective. That is the point and nothing else. You know, uh, during the, for example, Kuwaiti crisis, you see that uh, um, Iran had a very negative view towards the uh, Emirates, towards the, uh, these uh, small kingdoms in the Persian Gulf. Actually, uh, one of the uh, aspects of Iran's foreign policy discourse during the first year after the revolution was uh, somehow delegitimizing the existing regimes there and how it somehow defends the legitimacy of uh, Kuwait's why? And I think that there is a kind of ideational change that actually that it does not see um, uh, Kuwait legitimate anymore. And that is very important, the uh, Kuwaiti system. And um, uh, yes, we may have materialist explanations as well, but those uh, kind of, uh, explanations do not give us uh, this um, insight, perhaps. Specifically, that emerged in these discussions. 
Uh, actually, I just uh, mentioned uh, three actors as examples, the Britain, uh, U.S., and original actors. Uh, perhaps uh, the most important actors are these, besides uh, uh, European actors, Russia, and uh, also perhaps China. And I think perhaps China and Russia have less problem with the idea than uh, these specific actors, and that, that was why I did not emphasize uh, their role. Uh, but I think that uh, any regional power needs to be identified as a regional power somehow by significant others in the system. And uh, this is, uh, we see that some of the main actors do not uh, recognize Iran's uh, identity as such. And this has its own implications, I think. If I can just follow up quickly, uh, how does sort of ethnic identities, uh, transnational ethnic identities, How does the Iranian elite see uh, sees Azerbaijan? Uh, because there, there might be some kind of uh, similarity, ethnically speaking, there's a large population of these areas. Uh, how do they see or yeah. how Iran sees? How does Iran? I mean, uh, actually, you know, um, uh, one of the problems in Iran's foreign policy and also in domestic politics is that uh, uh, many of the ethnic groups in Iran have affili uh, transnational affiliations, actually. Uh, the uh, Azaris um, identify themselves with a kind of uh, Turkish identity. Uh, Arabs in Khuzestan have a kind of Arab identity. Uh, Baluchis, uh, a kind of identification with Baluchis in the Pakistan. And uh, Kurdish with the uh, Kurdish in other states. Uh, this is actually a problem, but uh, I wonder to what extent it might affect uh, uh, Iran's uh, identity. Actually, uh, before the revolution, uh, Iranian identity was somehow uh, reduced to a Persian identity. And that was why uh, these ethnic groups were somehow alienated. Uh, but after the revolution, it seems that uh, instead of Persianizing, uh, Shiatizing, perhaps we may call it, uh, this kind of um, identity making has been more uh, dominant. And uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, during the second decade after the revolution and until now, we see that uh, Persianizing uh, assimilationist uh, policies again uh, have been readopted and they may have their own implications. But anyway, I don't think it uh, affects uh, uh, Iran's relations with uh, neighboring countries in a positive way. Surely it affects in a negative way because uh, actually uh, Azerbaijani politicians somehow, sometimes very openly uh, claim uh, that uh, uh, Iran's Azerbaijan is a part of the great Azerbaijan or something. And um, uh, we know about Saddam's uh, dreams about uh, Khuzestan. And these are all present there. And uh, these are actually factors that may lead even to more problems in the uh, path of uh, identification of Iran as a regional power because uh, these neighboring countries do not uh, have uh, uh, comfortable relations with Iran and they haven't had it uh, even before the revolution. Marcus? <coughs> I have two questions, um, one about competing identity discourses and the other one about socialization. Um, what I found, one of the things that I found very, very interesting in your talk is that you didn't just say this is Iranian identity, but you actually identified competing narratives mm. within, uh, within, uh, within um, um, Iranian identity. 
Now my question is, what, uh, what explains which one is stronger than the other? Which one, which one uh, makes, uh, makes maybe, some, so maybe one of them is more persuasive than another one? Uh, you mean among accommodationists? Uh, right. When, when, you, when you talked about, I think you called the one independence narrative and the other one. Uh, justice and independence, right. yeah. And uh, which one, which one, uh, which one comes out stronger and why? Is my question about that. And then just just one more one more question. And the other one about socialization. Um, if the if the outside world tries to socialize Iran into something, then um, how do you think they try it? Who do you think are the actors who tried it? And what would you think in terms of socializing um, Iran? Um, what do you think are effective methods and what do you think are ineffective? Mm -hmm. Um, actually, about uh, the relationship between the two, uh, two discourses of independence and justice, uh, as I mentioned, I think that the discourse of uh, independence is more significant uh, domestically. But uh, discourse of justice has more um, uh, international uh, implications, you know, because it is somehow related to the uh, concept of non-intervention. And when you talk about universal justice, uh, when you want to support liberationist movements, I don't know, uh, oppressed of the world or whatever, this leads somehow to intervention uh, in other, with at least inter what is described as being intervention by other actors in the system. And because of this, I think um, uh, somehow it became more uh, state uh, compatible uh, due to the fact that uh, it was less significant domestically and it was more confrontationist internationally. And that was why it uh, somehow, uh, mo it was modified uh, more easily. Uh, and about your second question, uh, I think that, uh, uh, actually I wonder to what degree socialization is uh, uh, agent uh, oriented or structural. As I have seen it, it is more something structural uh, rather than an agency. I know uh, the discussions about the role of hegemonic powers in uh, socializing other countries. Even if it is so, it seems that the more, the, actually the hegemonic power has been the least successful in uh, socializing in Iran during the last two decades or so. Uh, and uh, uh, on the other hand, if you look at the discursive structure, we see that the discursive structure has been most influential. International law, international regulations, international rules. These have been uh, more influential in changing Iran's foreign policy discourse. Uh, and uh, uh, the target of uh, socialization is uh, Iran as a state. Uh, and uh, uh, perhaps the problem is that it is again seen something monolithic. It is not, uh, no, no state is uh, monolithic really. We actually just um, assume that uh, state actors are monolithic entities, but they are not. And the case of Iran shows that it is not. And, uh, and so uh, targeting it as a state perhaps is, um, does not succeed if uh, different uh, factions in Iran actually carry different identities and are constituted, uh, and actually have been constituted differently. John? I, I want to uh, get at the issue of identity in another way, maybe, maybe it's the same way. 
Um, it seems to me what you've given us is a very uh, intelligent and insightful discussion of foreign policy as it's evolved under the gang of mullahs and theocrats who took over in 1979. If they'd been defeated by the army, or if the Shah had come back, or if the communists had taken back, taken over, the foreign policy would look different. Yeah. And why, why do you want to call that identity? Uh, I mean, did the Soviet Union's identity change when Gorbachev took over? Did Cuba's identity change when Castro took over? It just seems to me that it's like you don't need the word identity or discourse or narrative either for that. And what do we need? You've got a bunch of guys in charge. They core fabricated foreign policy. You've got your ideology, your theology, and it's some different gang of guys who are in charge. You have a different foreign policy. Uh, actually, so call it identity. Uh, I don't think it is that easy to reduce uh, ident uh, reduce uh, foreign policy to uh, individuals or leaders or a group of people. It is something um, actually structurally there. And uh, 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 what is important here Are you is saying this foreign policy be identical if the communists had taken over. Instead of actually, uh, yeah, yeah. If if the communists took over, uh, Iran would have uh, a communist identity. That is for sure. And it uh, would okay, have a different path of yeah, a different uh, foreign policy. That is for sure. Again, instead of no east, no west, we would have um, actually uh, um, uh, pro-eastern policy. That was for sure. And uh, if uh, Iran continued to have its uh, pre-revolutionary identity, uh, Iran would have remained uh, pro-west, uh, pro-U.S. And uh, I think this is very important. That how. Uh, as you say, for example, the change in the ruling elite somehow affects the identity of the state. And uh, something is important, that I emphasize uh, Islamic Republic identity. This is not something to say general Iran's identity. Some uh, part of the literature actually see national culture as uh, being the foundation of Iran's identity in general. And uh, there is no difference from the... Uh, uh, I don't know, Cyrus era up to the present, we have had a national culture, and there has been there, and there has been not much change. And in the same way that uh, Iran um, actually wanted to become a regional power during the Shah's era, it, it wants to be a regional power now, and there is no change. And uh, this is actually what we see as the continuation of national culture, national identity. I didn't look at the issue from this point of view. I uh, emphasize state identity, and actually part of the definition of the state is the uh, regime uh, that actually um, gives it its uh, specific identity in a specific period of time. So, so you're arguing that there's aspects of Iranian foreign policy be identical no matter who is in charge? That might be that might be explained through uh, another perspective in which national culture and uh, actually a kind of continuity of uh, uh, general culture, general political culture is emphasized. Not the discourses that I mentioned were uh, constructed during the revolution. I want to show how this historical identity was, in particular, formed not the general identity of Iran. Uh, there have, uh, there, uh, actually, there have been works in uh, Persian published about the continuities in uh, Iran, Iran's foreign policy uh, in the course of history and how there are elements that we can uh, distinguish uh, since 2,000, 3,000 years ago. 
uh, that is not helpful uh, in the way that uh, I see it because you have to see how historical identities are formed. And here you have to pay attention to specific historical contexts, and it is the revolution here. Is there a gendered side to this discourse? Um, well, I have never thought of it. <laughs> uh, perhaps uh, we may find uh, gender uh, aspects. Of course, no. Um, in general, I think the, if you look at the whole international uh, ideational structure, it is uh, a male-dominated, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, discourse. And uh, even inside the countries, you see that uh, general discourses of foreign policies uh, are uh, produced, reproduced, and uh, modified uh, to agencies that are, again, male-dominated. And so, uh, yes, perhaps. <laughs> Uh, I think that uh, from even a gender point of view, you uh, find uh, uh, discourses of uh, independence and uh, justice present, but perhaps there are different definitions for independence and justice. And uh, you may, no, actually, I, I, I'm not sure whether this is um, true or not, but you can say that uh, from a a female uh, point of view, perhaps uh, justice and independence will be uh, defined more cooperatively. And uh, this is something to be actually studied. I don't take it for granted in general. <laughs> okay. Well, Wait, just okay. on time. <laughs> no, it's actually on time. Oh, okay. It's yes. Uh, thank you very much. Hamir will be here all year. So